0: After an hour, they reached another trench. It was the Mahajran River. If only she knew how they'd managed to make these large rivers dry up. It was another half hour before they reached the third trench, Hamdan River. Her dismay deepened as she passed along an orchard that used to be planted with fruit trees. Twisted, dried stalks were turning a brownish black. This used to be grapevine trellises in her time. Where the apricot, orange, apple, and lemon trees once stood, there were only bare ashen sticks. The banana trees had slumped to the ground like heaps of brown rags. She gazed up at the dull yellow leaves of the date-palm trees. She knew date-palms have formidable powers of endurance. Stroking her husband's bones, she let him in on her bewilderment. How will we live in this desolation? She caught sight of a thicket of reeds and papyrus plants. Good Omen's footsteps grew slower until he finally ground to a halt. She dismounted. You must be hungry. With a quick toss of his head, he made for the thicket. Her heart skipped a beat the moment she came up to the dry trench of the Hababo River. She couldn't suppress her excitement. We're almost there. Good Omen broke into a gallop. Don't overdo it, she pleaded, and he slowed down again. We have to be careful. We might run into the army. They'll ask, where have you come from? and even if they take pity on Um Qasim's gray hair, they might say, "'Go back where you came from, old woman, "'before you get hauled off and interrogated.' A sense of conviction took hold of her. "'If I get to my house and make it inside "'before any of them stop me, I'll know how to stay.' But the next moment she hesitated as she wondered to herself, "'What would she say to them "'if they kicked their way into the house?' She caressed the cloth containing her
1: husband's bones. God is our Keeper. That was an excerpt from The Old Woman and the River uh, by Ismail Fahad Ismail and translated by Sophia Vasalu and read beautifully as usual by Marsha Lynx I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is episode 38 of the Bulak podcast. Um, which for the first time is being recorded between Amman and Rabat. So over um, the internet and over a long distance, I actually looked it up this morning and we're a little over 5,000 kilometers apart. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Or or if you wanted and could road trip it, 62 hours of driving. Okay. All right. (laughs) Which would actually be... If you know, if if m- these multiple borders that have been closed for so long were not, uh, would be like an awesome road trip. It would be a fun road trip. I'm in. It'd be fantastic. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So so what? So we want to talk uh, about this book, um, whose uh, whose original title in Arabic is the is the name of the of the region where it's set. Uh, S- Sabiliyat, am I saying it right? Sabiliyat, yeah, and that's the village where
0: Ismail Fahd, Ismail himself I- is from, was born. He's a Kuwaiti novelist, or that's how he's known in any case, but he was born in this village that is close to the border between Iran and Iraq. And the 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 novel itself, uh, with Um Qasim as its hero and, um, uh, and Don Quixote figure, it is set at the beginning of the Iran Iraq war and she has lived all her life in this village near the border is evacuated and now in the excerpt that I read from is on her way she, she has her her family's relocated they're doing pretty well in Najaf um her children are loving there, there's not some you know she's not being driven away from home uh, but she 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 needs to go back, so she sort of steals one of the family donkeys, good omen, gets on board, and they head back for this village near the border that is um, under bombardment.
1: Right, and and so the story is about how is I mean, so she's the main character, her and her and her donkey, who is. A a lovely presence in the story um, and who she talks to um, regularly and who's a very intelligent animal. And then mostly the soldiers and officers that she deals with once she arrives in the completely empty village that she's evacuated from um, and tries to like negotiate a way to stay there. Uh, and then I suppose her her dead husband, who she talks to regularly and is visited from in her dreams, um, is also right. Although it's also- unclear
0: if she necessarily believes that he's visiting her dreams, or if she understands in some way that she's const- she's allowing herself to do what she wants by talking to this figure of her dead husband.
1: Yeah, I mean. Um, she is a character that seems both sort of very naive and at the same time savvy, and in fact, in the end, sort of comes to be viewed by the soldiers as having this sort of quite extraordinary wisdom.
0: Yeah, I think that she will be considered in the future a saint, uh, somebody you know, she, she can somebody who can see the future. Um, But I, I, you know, I think she moves between these two states in a way that I think is very human, uh, uh, of sort of believing her own narrative and being self-aware about her narrative. uh, You know, saying, remembering her son, saying, "Come on, Mama. Whenever you want something, then that's when you you know you recall that Dad wanted it." so I, I think she both believe, you know. Of course, she doesn't really believe that she can see the future. That is the soldiers, but um, but I, I think I love how she moves between these states of naivety and and cleverness.
1: Yeah, it's a very. Um, I mean, I enj- I enjoyed it a lot. It's it's a very original, I thought, and kind of refreshing uh, point of view on conflict and very touching i mean because the scenes when she goes back to the village and you know one of the neighbor's houses has been damaged by a bomb and she just has this like impulse where she wants to clean it up she wants to fill the hole she wants to drag the the exploded ordinance out and throw it away and she and she wants to sort of repair i related so much to that um of wanting to sort of make things like normal and comfortable and homey again. And then it makes you think about trying to do that in these absolutely devastated landscapes that you see now in the news. Like, like do, you, you know, like
0: stories of Syrians and their and the Rose Gardens. Um, and of course the soldiers find her to be absurd in, in, Fixing this because they know, as, as she knows as well, that more bombs are on the way, and also that. So, in addition to the the donkey, her her dead husband's ghost slash bones, uh, the other the the soldiers, and also all the rich plant and animal life that exists there. Part of why she's doing what she's doing is for the frogs, is for the trees. She's you know she's also communicating with with all all this part of of natural life as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, the landscape of this part of the country really comes to life. And like in the excerpt you read, uh, the the discussion of these rivers, so the rivers have been um, dammed up because they're afraid that Iranian uh, soldiers are going to infiltrate, like divers are going to infiltrate through the rivers. Um, Apparently. (laughs) I mean, the, the, it also made me curious the the book about sort of learning more about this part of the country, about this time in the war. Um, uh, so all these these tributary uh, rivers of the Shat al Arab are dammed, and so of course all the all the orchards and all the gardens and everything is dying and there again too like you comp- i completely relate it to this desire to not let it all die and to get water flowing again and 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 keep you know all these plants alive and i think also the so the soldiers at first think she's you know quite eccentric um but then in fact they are also kind of caught up in the pleasure of basically reestablishing some kind of normalcy like uh you know, catching fish or transplanting bushes, like they all start to offer to help, right? Um, making date syrup. Yeah, the,
0: the sort of great pleasure of, uh, of helping the land do what it wants to do rather than destroying it. Um, and, and also, you know, her, her great sympathy for those three frogs. I really felt very strongly for those three frogs in the little dusty patch that were about to die when she gets a visitation from her husband and goes out to the river and just, you know, destroys the dam.
1: Yeah. It reminded me actually, I mean, this is something complete, but I had, um, I know someone who had a house and a garden outside of this uh, village in Morocco, um, and at one point there was a big real estate, luxury, sport development down in the valley close to the ocean that that this village overlooked, and it and they they dried up the river, um, oh, they they dammed the river uh, and. This friend described they had a they did a sort of emergency um, operation to save like all the frogs and um, and fish and 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 various animals that they could that were dying in the suddenly like dried out river and they, they brought as many as they could up to this pond by the village uh, and, and it all it means it's a I don't know it's a sad yeah I mean I've never ex- right
0: I've never experienced anything like this but I felt a great communion. I of course frogs are are sort of you know the spell bellwether for the health and of our entire planet and I felt probably the most and of course for the for the roses for the houses for for the trees but there was nothing that moved me as much as these three frogs and then after the storm when she takes when she and no I <laughs> she was referred to over and over again as the 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 old women, um, and everyone seemed to think she was too old and feeble to do anything. Of course, she is only, I think, in her early to mid-50s, since her husband was a bit older than her and he was not yet 60 when he died. Um, th- they seem to to be able to tell themselves that it's not possible that she is the one who destroyed the dam and uh, allowed the the water to flow back into the rivers.
1: Right. How could she? I mean, there's a lot of things that are really admirable in this book in the sense that also um, uh, there's there's a surprising take on a lot of uh, gender stereotypes or gender expectations. So the main character is this old woman. She ventures off like completely fearlessly into a war zone. Um, And it's also, it's not sort of like commented on too much or insisted upon too much either. Um, She just is this kind of a protagonist. Um, And I I mean, there's a lot of things I think that that are quite interesting. It also made me, like all these descriptions about the rivers and the ecosystems made me think about, Iraq today, which like a lot of countries from what I've read, has like a real um, water crisis, both in terms of pollution and climate change, and the way water is used. And so, like so many countries in the region, this really like blessing of water uh, is is under threat. Yeah, I don't think Um Qasim would be. I, I don't know what
0: the situation in Sabileet is right now, but I, I doubt that she would be very pleased to come back and see it. Um, but she is this kind of Don Quixote figure where uh, it's it's not about the result. It's not we yes, we know we know while we're reading the book and Ismail Fahd Ismail knew while writing the book what happens next in Iraq. But it's not about that. It's about these moments with Muqassim as this, yes, tremendous hero of the book, and not in a um, boundary-breaking feminist kind of way, but just in a very ordinary way of a woman living her ordinary life.
1: I also thought there's is such a incredibly loving depiction of a loving marriage in this book. Yes. Um like all these imaginary conversations she's having with her dead husband and one of the main reasons that she goes back is because she's so heartbroken as a widow and and lonely and 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 she has all these, you know, conversations with him. And I, I, it's rare, I think, in any fiction, actually, any, to have um, the depiction of a happy marriage be the main, one of the main elements of contemporary fiction. Like it's much more common, I think, to have romantic misery. Um, but it, and, not, it's not that, just her; it's um,
0: her kids all are happily married as well. Her her grandchildren seem like decent people. It's a whole. Uh, you know, a constellation of happy family life. That is not where the the tension comes from in the story.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, if I were... So, so there's a lot of things about this book that I really, really enjoyed. Um, in terms of some of my, you know, maybe criticisms of it is... Uh, it it reads very well, it flows very well. I think the, tr- the translation, I mean, it's very easy to read and very clear. I sometimes wished that the language was more striking. I mean, that there was more style to it. Mm. Sometimes it's just, and also I sometimes wondered if the whole conceit would work just as well as like a short story or a novella than as the full-length novel because at a certain point it kind of, the same repeats this pattern of you know her finding a way to kind of you know remain and do something useful and show the soldiers her usefulness and her good nature like that gets done multiple times. I almost wondered if a more like concentrated form of this, and also I sort of thought it's such a neat story, the premise is so neat, but I almost wish, um, that. The writing was more evocative sometimes.
0: Okay, so I'm going to disagree about the short story slash novella uh, aspect because I do think that it was constantly accelerating. Particularly, um, is she going to be arrested? Is she going to be kicked out? Uh, and this the the establishment of her as this prophetic figure and and waiting on whether whether the soldier that she's announced, who who she felt was like a son to her. The other thing that I really liked was that um, there's no uh, sort of overwhelming mythology of motherhood where she has to stay with her children and grandchildren. Um, She decides, okay, her kids and grandkids are doing fine. Uh, She likes them. She misses them, sure, but bye. She's off to do some other things with her life. Um, she does. She does have these now. All these soldiers as her new children, and and uh, the tension of waiting to see if this soldier's hand is blown off is going to re volunteer for the Iraqi army and come back like she predicted that he would, just because he loved her like a mother. Uh, I I really, you know, I was waiting to see what would happen until the end. So, so I did not. I I know there were some. Um, disagreements about the translation, uh, between the translator and maybe some of the edits of the publisher. I don't know. I don't know the whole landscape of that. Uh, so I can't really comment on, on that, but I, I found it easy to read and just to stuff, you know, there, I feel like there are few enough books where I just feel a sense of delight running through it. And I really enjoyed this book through to the end
1: you know I did too um I uh I didn't have any suspense about whether the soldier was going to (laughs) come back because by then they'd sort of established so much that like she's kind of always right and you know um kind of always in some way gets her way and always kind of has has some vision of what's going to happen um, that, but I did find it suspenseful in the beginning, like for, for quite a while, like her trip down to the village and how is she going to get the water flowing and how is she going to manage to stay and where is she going to find food and where's the donkey going to find food? All these things are, are interesting. Um, I just, I thought some pages really, Sang and I wished that all of them did in that way because others didn't so much for me. And I think it's such a kind of evocative and powerful story. I wish that everything popped a little bit more. Right. Um, Also, maybe in terms of the characters, in terms of the dialogue, I felt like there was a chance, I don't know, for it to be even more vivid. Um, But I really, I did very much enjoy it. And like you say, you just. You know, it's a story you don't expect and you don't you don't know where it's going. Um, and that's rare.
0: Right. And I read I you know, of course most books set in a time of war are if if uh enjoyable in a black humorous way, very rarely do I read <laughs> what feels like a light, nature-oriented, um in- fun novel that's right centered around war
1: yeah yeah i know it's uh it no it's 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 quite an accomplishment and um and it's not a book i'd heard about so th- thanks for sharing it with me um uh I know in terms of the, again, I think it reads quite well. It reads quite smoothly, actually. Like there's no, it, w- it was pleasant to read. Um, uh, I know you may have had a reservation about the tra- the title that they chose for the translation. Oh,
0: <laughs> the funniest thing about the title is, so this novel was on the 2017 shortlist for the International Prize for Fiction and is sort of my, you know, would have been my favorite to win. Um and Sabiliette, okay, I agree that that would be a hard sell in English, but I've now looked up the title and what's the English title, which I'm staring at it right now, The Old Woman in the River, 20 separate times minimum because I can't remember it. So there's something ultimately forgettable about that title that I can't put my finger on.
1: Yeah, I, for me, it just has such a strong echo of like the old man on the sea. Uh, I don't know if that was purposeful or not. Uh, I, I do think it kind of... Yeah, it's not a particular... I don't have as much of an issue with it as you do, but it's not a particularly memorable memorable one. And it doesn't have, whereas the original one is so specific, it has a, such a specificity of a particular place. Um, this, right. This could be any old woman and any river anywhere. Right. Right. Although finding a good title is very hard and I'm terrible at it myself, like for for articles, for example, or for blog posts or for podcast episodes, <laughs> I like really struggle with with finding a good title. So I know it's not easy. Well, I, I don't think so since you're the one who always comes up with the titles
0: and I'm the I'm the one who, who always can't come up with anything. But yes, coming up with a, a good pithy title, particularly if you're going to change a title in translation, which happens relatively often and I think is a fine
1: decision. Um, I, I think that's a, a really challenging thing to do. You kind of have to wait for inspiration to hit. Um, I also get help sometimes. I crowdsource titles. Like I go to people who are better than me and I ask them for ideas because there are people who have a knack for it. Um, And it's like a really hard thing to just sort of um, come up with by committee. Like someone has to have an inspiration, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's because there are so many things you're trying to accomplish with the title to catch someone's attention. Also, a, a title needs to be something that people can remember from week to week. Right. Uh, you know, to encapsulate what's going on. It, it, I mean, basically to attract somebody to the book, I guess, would be the number one thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Also, like, it just has to be, like, not... Sometimes they're just, like, ugly titles. I'm thinking about movies more than books right now, but just, like, terrible ones. But repel, repel you. (laughs) You know, in their sort of blandness or their sort of, like, non, you know, I don't know. Well, I think,
0: uh, to me, you know, Netflix, for instance, has become a repository of these dreadful one-word titles. But the titles there seem less important, because of course I can also see the thumbnail and the little description right. uh, as well. Whereas with this book, when I'm telling people about it, if I'm writing about it, that hook is the the, the singular thing that I have because of course people that haven't heard of Ismail Fahd Ismail even though this was a book he wrote at the end of his life and he's an extremely accomplished uh, Kuwaiti novelist, many, many awards to his name. It, it doesn't carry into, into the English. People don't know who he is. So the title, The Old Woman in the River, needs to do all the work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's inter- I didn't know that he wrote this book at the end of his life, but it doesn't surprise me. It's such a, um, a kind of love letter to, a part- to where he's from, I guess.
0: Yeah, and a very confident novel.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: y- you know, he does a lot of things in it that you might feel— Nervous to do, I guess, if you had less experience in writing narratives.
1: Yeah, it's true that it has these kind of, um, uh, you know, hard to believe turns, but somehow they go down very, very smoothly. Like it's right on the edge, you know, between realism and surrealism. And it all just kind of flows pretty, pretty, yeah, confidently. And speaking of Netflix, um, another thing that we both... uh,
0: read slash watch this week was Berdad Central, which is the adaptation of which will appear on channel 4 first in the UK and then later will come to uh, American screens uh, of Elliot Cola's novel, which I can't remember what year it came out now, Berdad Central, which is set right in the first nine months I believe of of the 2003 in invasion uh, of, of Iraq. By us forces and it's sort of told as a it's also in an unexpected way of of approaching war not you know quite as unexpected as sort of this light-hearted fantastic way, but it is uh, uh, through the lens of a detective story it's also written by, a professor in Georgetown who's who's not I think who had difficulty initially pitching the novel because he wasn't either a US soldier or an Iraqi himself. Um so I think publishers initially you didn't mean- know what to do about this novel.
1: You mean getting it published?
0: Yeah, in terms of, of originally getting it published, original. Well, once it was published, I think it did quite well, and then of course it attracted the attention of these directors and producers, and now it's it's turned into a, a series um, that we watched the first episode of.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, and that I really enjoyed.
1: Yeah, so it's um, I mean, from the so so it's a it's a noir, it's a crime story, it's a it's a th- it's a mystery. Um, I have, of course, because I just don't have memory anymore. I'd like forgotten the whole. Um, you know, actual mystery. Like I couldn't remember the plot anymore. Mm-hmm. What had, re- what I'm, what had <laughs> remained with me was the um, my overall impression of the book, like the feeling of the book and a little bit of the characters. But so watching the first episode, it was like, you know, completely new story to me because I, I had, I had forgotten what the actual intrigue was. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it looks like a I mean it looks like a well-done adaptation. I then looked where it was I thought the settings and locations looked so good that I wanted to know where it was filmed, and then it turns out I think it was filmed in Warzazat in Morocco.
0: It was filmed partly in Warzazat and partly in Rabat. So if some parts of it seem very familiar to you, it's because they are. But they um you, you know, I decided to sort of sus- suspend belief on yes I know where this is and it's not in Baghdad, um, also in in, any infelicities and accents or, or whatever, because I really, I thought this was also a story that, that now it will come to us viewers in a, in a very different way. There's so much Arabic in the first episode. I was surprised about that, um, of course, they're, they're supposed to be in Baghdad, so I guess that shouldn't be tremendously shocking. But, um, you know, I watched all of Chernobyl and everybody's speaking in English, not in Russian. Um, and, and just a story from the point of view of, of Iraqis, Iraqi citizens, I think is something that comes so rarely to uh, American entertainment.
1: Yeah, I can't think of actually many other examples. I mean, I don't watch probably enough American television to know what kind of pop culture depictions. I can just think of some of the movies that have been made about the war, and they have certainly foregrounded. I'm thinking about like The Hurt Locker uh, I didn't watch this like American Sniper movie, but they they, they foreground't no, isn't, right. Is't that what it was called? American Sniper. There, it was a American sniper. It's based on a the memoir
0: of this guy who was a sniper and proudly killed many people. I, I read news stories about the uh, the novel and the film, but no, I, I didn't watch it either.
1: Whereas this movie is, yeah, so the main character is this, and like totally superficial aside, very attractive in his screen incarnation. Uh, ir- he is. Iraqi police officer, um, who's a pleasure <laughs> to observe. Um, and, and the intrigue is set off by the disappearance of his daughter. But And, and then, of course, this first year after the U.S. invasion, you have... Um, you know, a country that's in upheaval and there's all sorts of um, new powers and new arrangements. It's like a perfect setting for a noir. It's it's scary. It's chaotic, uh, and people are sort of remaking their lives. Um, and then also the insurgency against the occupation is starting. The average people's view of the occupation is changing very rapidly. From some people who like the character of his daughter. Sort of originally was in favor, seemingly of the of the American military operations because she wanted a change, uh, and then clearly, uh, you know, views it differently pretty quickly. Oh, one other thing is
0: uh, that I I've become very used to seeing depictions of torture in uh, in TV shows and and films that American TV shows and films in particular but also uh, British and other ones uh, to the point where uh, you know it seems like it's used for titillation uh, it's used as a comedy device it's just seems to become so pervasive that you find characters being tortured for information for for entertainment uh, for anything that i i did but i did find this use of torture I obviously, because of its real life residence, um, startling and moving and troubling.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have a kind of zero tolerance for for torture scenes at this point, like like you say, because it feels like it's become such a standard part of all entertainment. And if anything, I find it like more unbearable to watch than than ever before. Like my, I'm like more painful to watch as the years go by, um, because it always makes me think of you know real people. Um, but yeah, of course, how are you going to talk about even that time without that being a part of your story? Uh, I think. You know, I've spent a significant amount of time thinking about torture and what it entails and what it must be like from having reported, you know, on on this part of the world for the last 15 years because it is such a fundamental part of uh, the political systems, of repression, of uh, occupation um, that it, it, it it's almost inevitably a part of any story that's trying to capture like the big mechanisms of how society works.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe I, I, I wouldn't be able to say about how British viewers will react when it appears on Channel 4. I imagine that they would somehow be able to say, yes, this is what the Americans did. But I think it will be surprising for American viewers who... Have not, as you have, you know, reported extensively um, on, on torture. To to feel, I think, a sense of complicity, um, a, a sense that we oh, this is something we did, or or else, I suppose, you know, sort of to shut down and say, well, this isn't true, this didn't really happen. Um, I, I think it sort of it push. I mean, it, it pushes it there, right, right from the beginning.
1: Well, or, I mean, because the other attitude to torture has become increasingly like, yeah, so we do it, so what? I mean, because you've had whole television shows sort of premised on, you know, the hero torturing multiple people, uh, you know, over the course of it. Like, I think that's the other, uh, you know, disturbing development is that, is that sometimes the reaction to knowing things is actually to, like, is that the American attitude towards uh, the violence that we perpetuate abroad or on our borders or wherever uh, is not always a factor of not knowing what we're doing. Sometimes it's a factor of knowing it and then deciding to say, well, but it's necessary, you know? Right. And, we're, well, okay, and we're not so then, apologize for right. it. Right. Okay. And I'm, I'm not... I'm not expecting for
0: any uh, TV show to take on the responsibility of changing people's perceptions of, of the world, but I do think that this shifts the frame. So I do I have watched any number of television shows where it is the hero who is tortured, and I find that to be uh, impossible to watch. Actually, so um, while I did watch the torture scenes here, sort of you know flinching and half shading my eyes. As as I do, I just I don't watch those because uh I the hero doing the torture as though this is some sort of heroic act of gaining information uh, is is beyond disturbing. But here it shifts. So we're not uh, following Chris Kyle. I think his name is the the American sniper. Instead, we we are we are one with this. Yes, very attractive Iraqi uh, police officer who is. Who, who whose home is broken into? He's told he's the three of whatever it was, um, three of spades, three of something, uh, and he is dragged into prison and and tortured.
1: Yeah, and even before that, you get like an American checkpoint from the point of view of the Iraqis driving through it, and how unnerving that is, and how obsequious they have to be towards the soldiers which who they like really resent and make fun of but are also scared of because you know they can arrest you or shoot you and they don't have you know any accountability really so it it does the frame of reference is is different
0: yeah so i'm i'm excited for people to to watch it and to hear who i i also sort of as purely a piece of entertainment. I thought the acting was good. I thought the shooting was good. I thought the pacing was good. Uh, it, it is the, it is a show where I, uh, you know, if it were I don't know set in Bolivia, and uh, uh, I would watch the next one. I mean, I, if it was not written by somebody, it was not the the show of somebody based on a book of some, by somebody I know. I would still keep watching it.
1: Yeah. Cool. All right. So it gets you know Bullock. Two thumbs up or whatever stars. I don't know. What, <laughs> okay. I don't know what our rating system is yet for literary adaptations, but um, okay. But uh, yeah, yeah, to look out for, um, and and then sort of shifting gears a bit, but uh, but perhaps uh, connected in terms of shifting perspectives. Maybe is a connection I can make. We were also going to talk a bit about um, a writer. Who you have had the satisfaction of seeing uh, get savaged <laughs> recently, and and this is long-awaited revenge um, because because you've had an axe to grind with him forever um, over some, over one of his own reviews. Um, so I'm talking uh, about John Updike, uh, whose work I have never really read. Like I never. He Didn't must have read Rabbit Run. Come on, at some point I didn't. It wasn't he wasn't read like it's not a book that my it wasn't my parents didn't read him that I know of. Or so I think. A lot of people of our age, it was our parents who read Updike, and so then the books were just like around the house. Maybe. Uh, well, my but my parents did not have books,
0: but I'm sure I came up. I, I used to go book trolling at Goodwill, so I'm sure that's where I must have found
1: Updike's works. I've always, I don't know, you know how sometimes you, you know, you sort of have, uh, there's like an aura around a writer. Like before you read them, you have a kind of sense of who they are and who they're for. And he just never really, like I've always had the sense of, oh, maybe I should check him out because he's sort of important, I guess, in, you know, 20th century American literature. But then nothing that's ever been said about him or that I've read about him has made me super interested in, in reading him, um, where I think I've read like a little bit of Norman Mailer, a bit of Philip Roth, but uh, yeah, I just, I don't think I've read anything by Updike. And if anything, you know, his reputation, I think has been in a, in a long, slow decline for, for many years. Right. And yeah,
0: I, more than remembering, I can remember the feeling of having read The Updike, I can remember what the paperback looked like and what it kind of smelled like—that musty Goodwill smell. But other than that, um, I I, I did have a strong sense that Patricia Lockwood was right about a lot of things. But I couldn't really say that I remember anything specific from the from the novels. But so my my beef with with Updike comes from one, two rather New Yorker reviews that I think were published in oh the uh, 1987 that of course I didn't read at the time but came across online and they have been I think a significant block a significant enough block to so abdurrahman munif who uh you can call a, a saudi writer if you like although his citizenship was stripped or or a, one of the great arabic writers of of the 20th century never really got traction in English. And I think Peter Thoreau at least, the translator of this first book in, in the Cities of Salt Quintet, um, Continues to feel some resentment towards Updike as well because he did do a piece in 2012, which was significantly after this review came out for Words Without Borders, and it it, it seems from his overview that a lot of the reviews of the time talked about oil and oil culture and um, sort of ridiculous things that were nothing about the book at all, but just using the book as a, a jumping off point. But that this was the review that he still. Was annoyed about.
1: So this is Updike, in, you said the late eighties. Yes, I believe so. And so he's re- and he reviews the Thoreau's English translation of the first installment of Cities of Salt, which right. is a tri- a trilogy. It's a quintet. Quintet. Okay. And they did
0: not. They did not all come into English. And I, for no reason that has any facts behind it, blame John Updike fake news. No, just <laughs> <laughs> I blame his Satan's Work and Silted Cisterns review.
1: Okay, well so so this review, why don't you read some of John Updike's very condescending review of uh Abdurrahman Munif. All right, with novel. with
0: pleasure actually. The most fabulous geological event since the explosion of Krakatoa surely was the discovery of oceans of petroleum beneath the stark and backward Muslim realms of the Persian Gulf. Sheikhs whose wealth was previously measured in horses and camels soon ranked with the world's richest men dusty remoteness like Kuwait and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia became able with scarcely a dent in their national revenues to shower all the blessings of an advanced welfare state upon their sparse populations. According to the World Almanac, the highest per capita income on the planet uh, belongs not to the United States or Sweden or Japan, but to Qatar, the Western view of this global caprice is expressed by a resentful characters of dollar-glutted sheikhs and by our nervous protective naval presence in the Persian Gulf. The Arab view receives less publicity. Cities of Salt, a novel by Abdurrahman Munif, translated from the Arabic by Peter Thoreau, Random House, $18.95, performs a needed service in dramatizing the impact of American oil discovery and development upon an unnamed Gulf Emirate in the 1930s. It is unfortunate, given the epic potential of this topic, that Mr. Munif, a Saudi born in Jordan, appears to be, though he lives in France and received a PhD in oil economics from the University of Belgrade, insufficiently westernized to produce a narrative that feels much like what we call a novel. All right. And
1: there you have it. It, uh, so it's it's it, it actually sounds worse when you read it out loud. In your <laughs> like, al- also you do put on like a super extra pompous voice, but it it it's worse when you hear it out loud. Like it's bad on the page, but it's yeah.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe I, I read it aloud in my head so many times uh, because you know, of course, John Uptake is talking about. Uh, okay, first of all, I uh, yes, <laughs> You know, there's such a like a Protestant, um, you know, uh, so United States or Sweden or Japan, of course, are deserving of wealth, but you know, not not a place like like Qatar. Um, I mean, all, all of this, at uh, literally every word of this, it's about the book that Updike somehow wants to read, but it he you know without engaging with the text as it was, and, you know, this sparsely populated lands. Sure, Apparently he didn't do any research into literary forms in, in the Gulf before Cities of Salt was written uh, or, you know, what it means, think about what it means to, to say a sentence like to produce a narrative that feels much like what we call a novel.
1: Right. But so, so, His argument is basically uh, to summarize that what he what he means by, you know, insufficiently westernized to produce what we call a novel is that he uh, basically takes the book to task for having characters with no individuality or interiority, I would say, is like his argument that it has this broad I don't know, he says it like a a sort of, it's more a sociological approach because it's about how this entire community is affected uh, by the arrival of oil and then the arrival of Westerners and the changes to their society. So on the one hand, he finds that there's not enough individuals, um, which, you know, is a very narrow... Like instead of seeing this as something interesting as a as as that it's interesting that it's sort of told from a more of a collective point of view, he views it purely as like a lack, right? Um and And then the other thing is he's like kind of quotes at length the negative depictions of westerners and and kind of makes fun, I feel like of this this backward Saudi point of view, which is so shocked by you know, uh, Western Moors.
0: Oh, absolutely. He, he's definitely approaching the book. He thought he's doing that classic sort of review thing where he's uh, approaching the book he thought should have been written for whatever reasons, you know, whatever terrible reasons he thought it should have been written. And that's the book he's reviewing rather than trying to see what book
1: actually was there on the page. Yeah, he kind of misses the book that's right in front of him. And it's not to say, I mean, I read Cities of Salt a long, long time ago, but it made a very strong impression on me. Um, and per- and exactly those passages that he talks about, he also quotes at quite some length the passages that show sort of the Americans as, um, you know, this very unwelcome, disturbing uh, presence. And he almost makes fun, I feel like, of the Saudi point of view that sees them this way um, uh, as sort of like, you know, immoral and, and a threat and, uh, you know, the, the women with no clothes on and so on and so forth. But I remember those kind of culture clash passages as being like really uh, memorable. Yeah, well, I don't see, I don't think John Updike would have liked Baghdad
0: Central the depiction of the americans from the point of view of the iraqis either but and i so i'm disappointed that patricia lockwood in her big takedown did not mention this book review i would have liked that um she also says god forgive me john updike i did not read terrorist which i i would have liked you know to see both the coup and terrorist as uh, as you know both of these are sort of like um his whatever, for lack of a better word, his Islamofascist books. Um, <clears throat> she, she focuses much more on his gender politics and his interesting depictions of women's sexuality.
1: Yeah, what's the, the title of the book, of the review, which is taken from the article, is Malfunctioning Sex Robot, right? Mm, yes. I mean, I, to be honest, like, I know that you'd like her to have talked about these things, but I (laughs) wouldn't, I wouldn't change a line in that review. It is such a joy to read and, and not just, I'm actually don't generally like sort of like hatchet reviews, like uh, often, but this one actually is so... I don't know. She's clearly having so much fun with it. There's something so like joyful and it's not just a takedown. I mean, she, she, uh, she finds things to appreciate in his writing, but she sort of says, you know, when it, when it soars, it's good, but when it lands wrong, there's a sickening thud of a broken ankle. And, and she just, there are so many one-liners in this, in this review that are so delightful um yeah it's I think it's an instant classic. <laughs> well it's funny because James Wood wrote recently probably
0: on an entirely unrelated note that he was he was he was wondering if he was losing his touch because he hadn't written this sort of, you know, hatchet jog tape, take takedown recently. And I do find joy in those. Of course it has to be of a person of a particular stature. I don't think I would enjoy it hatchet job, you know, or hatchet review takedown of a debut novelist or something like that. But uh, I enjoy writing them as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's – I mean, and she she just starts – and she acknowledges from the very beginning. I mean, the first line of it is, I was hired as an assassin because, you know, you don't hire someone like – you don't commission basically someone like me to write about John Updike unless you expect there to be blood on the wall. like Blood on the ceiling, she said. Blood on the ceiling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just – I think, unfortunately, it's behind the paywall now, but we'll we'll link to that. And so, anyway, so John Updike, who was so – incredibly condescending um, to to a writer who we both love has, I think, gotten more than his comeuppance um, and a much more articulate uh, description of the shortcomings of his worldview than he actually musters to critique Abdurrahman Munif, which, yeah, again, he just seems to sort of find the Saudi point of view in that book off-putting. Yeah, definitely. And uh, another thing that's interesting
0: about it is that it's he pairs it, or, or whoever decided to pair it, with a review of Anton Shamas's Arabesques translated from the Hebrew by Vivian Eden. And also, um, I, I, <laughs> I only have the first page of it. I only have through a page 119. but but also finds it lacking in, in some of the same ways. Um, he he just, you know, he, like
1: he couldn't relate. Yeah, and as opposed to, I mean, look, you know, in the end, book reading, book reviewing, it is a very personal, subjective experience. But book reviewing is a little bit different, uh, especially when you have this kind of influence Um and I have always found it curious how sometimes when people don't get what they want or what they expect out of a book, they don't even think to ask if they're the ones that are lacking rather than the book. Well, he even goes so far as to say, you know, he you know he says,
0: so one wonders how long he can maintain his balancing act in a land where, as of now, Palestinian Arabs are assassinating officials who are, you know, it, he he wants to read a book about we expect perhaps a palestinian not we you know he means i expect perhaps a palestinian novel to be about the present palestinian problem much as some foreigners feel that american novel has a duty to grapple with our race problem or the horrors of capitalism but it's but you know arabesques is fundamentally nostalgic so he's like this isn't the book that i thought it was supposed to be
1: right meanwhile actually <laughs> Apparently, and again, I haven't read them, but the books that Updike himself wrote that dealt with race in America oh, are apparently yeah. like absolutely, <laughs> absolutely monstrous. <laughs> so I mean, you know, perhaps better not, uh, uh, not to follow his sense of what the novel from particular parts of the world should be grappling with. And I mean, I think also the thing with this with this Updike review is it's such a you know the way things from just 20 30 years ago can be so shockingly different you know can seem so alien and so exotic and so uh because they are so part of a of a different culture than what we're already in now um you know he it feels like reading you know something from a different era to me uh and that's not to say that uh you know, racism or ignorance or stereotypes have disappeared. Um but certainly like there was a recent review in the New Yorker by James Wood of Jochha El novel Celestial Bodies, which we've talked about, you've raved about, um one the uh, Man Booker International. <laughs> yeah, is it and and the review was is extremely positive and looks at exactly The formal ways in which the book is innovative and perhaps somewhat distinct from a Western novel, whatever that is anymore— um, because the Western novel is like been is deconstructing itself too, and has now done things where it's written in the collective we, or it's you know this incredibly mundane daily thing, or it's you know the line between fiction and nonfiction is evaporated, like you know it, it's 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 also completely sort of dissolved into many different forms. Um, but but he's he's uh, it's a very positive review of this novel as like doing something formally very original to reflect a slightly a different sort of social and cultural and historical context, um, and I think it's actually heartening to see uh, a such a such a nuanced and interesting review of a book from Oman as opposed to something, you know, saying, oh, you know, look how amazing, like a novel has come out of Oman.
0: Right. Yes. Which there were some of those reviews, but I think by and large, if you read reviews of Arabic literature, contemporary Arabic literature from the late eighties and early nineties in translation through the the first decade of the two thousands, sometime between 2011 and now there has been a shift, at least in the you know, New Yorker level review, if not in you know everybody's review in every paper worldwide.
1: Right. Not- I mean, like newspapers trading cliches, so there's only so much you can expect. That's probably they use them for literature from all over the world. You know, like there there's always going to be sort of some cliche ridden stuff, but but I think, like you say, in real in real book reviews. Uh, there's there's a lot more interest and a lot less of this framing of like, can they write a novel over there? Right. Or um, like I was reading old Kirkus reviews from the,
0: from the 90s, which is not really that long ago. And of Palestinian novels, they were sort of inevitably, even in this short form where they get about 250 words for their review, they were writing about their impression of Palestinian politics and how the book was incorrect (laughs) about, about events that happening, you know, that happened in, in Palestine or Israel. Whereas now, uh, El Sabillet, the old woman, now I forgot it already, the old woman in the river, the the old woman in the river got a starred review in Kirkus. Um, and it didn't talk about, uh, you know, Iraqi politics <laughs> we didn't talk about Iraqi politics or how this was wrong about the Iran-Iraq war.
1: Right. This was insufficiently um, representative of whatever focus a novel from that part of the world should have. So, right. Anyway, good, good, good. We can be thankful for for small advances. Yes. Um, and, uh and I think on that note we're gonna close out this episode yes on that positive note yeah why why not, <laughs> why not? <laughs> we'll take them where we can find them um and uh I will speak to you again in a couple weeks All right I will not see you but we'll hear you then yeah okay all right well it was great talking to you as usual lovely bye, talking to you bye <laughs> bye.